What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, creeps. It's me, John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper, and you're listening to Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Casualty Chris. And this is Father Malone. We're the hosts of Chronicles from the Crypt, a twice a month look at the cult horror anthology series Tales from the Crypt that aired on HBO from 1989 to 1996. The series is based on the 1950s EC Comics. In each of the podcasts, we'll be taking a look at two episodes of the show, and along the way we'll have a few bonus podcasts covering movies, other Tales-related TV shows, and some tangentially-related material that bears a striking resemblance to Tales from the Crypt. And I think we're doing one of those right now, aren't we? I was about to say, right now we're doing one of those. This is our first bonus episode. We're going to do a bonus episode between every season. We may even do more than one bonus episode. Strap in because we're there's some really exciting, interesting tales related ephemera that we could get into that we've been finding along the way. However, we're not having to search very hard to talk about the movie called Tales from the Crypt from 1972 from Amicus Pictures, directed by Freddie Francis. It's uh, it's written by Milton Subotsky and stars the three kind of big names in the film. Joan Collins, Peter Cushing in a very un-Peter Cushing-like role, and Ralph Richardson as a very human crypt keeper. Sir Ralph Richardson. Let's point that out. Sir Ralph Richardson. Yes. Next. Ah! Perhaps you. Death 
the uh, synopsis of the film is pretty straightforward. Five strangers get lost in a crypt and they meet the crypt keeper and he sits them down and tells them stories about how they're going to die. Mike, what did you think of this film? This was definitely not your first time watching it. However, it was mine. Uh, this is perhaps one of my favorite movies of all time. I think I saw this young enough. You know, I, I mentioned that I got into uh, Tales from the Crypt probably by seeing uh, the movie Creep Show back in 1982. That's not entirely true in retrospect because I saw this movie much earlier. Uh, this was a mainstay of local broadcast television. You would see it. Uh, at least once or twice a year, uh, usually on a show that I watched back in Boston called Creature Double Feature, which was on every Sunday afternoon, so you'd get two horror movies in a row. This would usually play with movies like The Monster Club or Vault of Horror, which is actually kind of a direct sequel to it, or any uh, number of the other anthologies that Amicus sort of trafficked in. I think this is a very worthy interpretation of the Tales from the Crypt comics. I mean, with the exception maybe of their interpretation of what the Crypt Keeper actually was it's interesting because they have him as a uh, as like a monk almost so he's a like a hooded character which if you read the ec comics at all you know that the uh, the old witch not the crypt keeper but the uh, the vault keeper uh, both wear hoods whereas the crypt keeper never did now putting that aside uh, i absolutely love this movie yeah i enjoyed it a lot it's a very different take on Tales from the Crypt. I mean, I had no idea what to expect. I know that you really liked it. And so that to me means that it's probably going to be good. I feel like some of the stories drag on. One of the stories just kind of doesn't really hit for me at all. I think overall it's it's a fun film. It's a it's a it's a welcome change from the Tales from the Crypt that we know. It's a mm-hmm. through a different lens. It's it's not as tongue in cheek. It's played a lot more straight, a lot more serious, which is kind of fun to see it a little bit more serious. Yeah, the Crypt Keeper is kind of an odd situation and we'll, we'll obviously touch on that, but let's just kind of, because the film is broken into five stories, let's just kind of run through each of the stories from the get-go. So uh, we're introduced to the characters. They meet the Crypt Keeper after wandering off from a tour in the catacombs, even though they're told not to. And so the first story is the original telling, the first screen telling of a story that is very near and dear to your heart and all through the house. And instead of Mary Ellen Trainer, it is Joan Collins. Joan Collins, who is one billion percent better than Mary Ellen Trainer in this role, represents a, uh, a level of sophisticated evil in all the ways that Mary Ellen Trainer was kind of a bumbling fool. It completely lacks any of the sort of boring uh, expositional dialogue that uh, that was peppered through the, uh, the the American version, the Robert Zemeckis version. The story is effectively exactly the same. It is a, uh, a wife murders her husband on Christmas Eve. She has a young daughter there just so happens that a mental patient has escaped from a uh, an asylum and has donned a santa claus costume although in this case it's father christmas because these stories all take place in england this movie is an english production amicus was in the english company all the acting and all the uh, the settings are all in england uh however where it differs from the american one is uh how skillful and stylish the whole thing is particularly the set design let's uh sort of point to that it's sort of that retro futurist 
early 70s, sort of passing out of the mod phase in England uh, and into a, a more uh, contemporary design. I love the look of the house in this one. When we talked about the American version, they I said that they kind of stacked the deck in favor of the heroine, or the uh, the villain, if you will, because they made her husband uh, to be kind of a prick, like from the get-go. And in this case, they they don't do that. They go in, just in the opposite direction. They make him like really, really sweet. Like he's bought her this brooch, and uh, like he he uh, he's written this sweet card to her. This line always sort of sticks in my head, where you, they're showing you the note, and at the bottom he's written like an X, like for a kiss, and he narrates it in his head to us and he says and a big kiss at the very end what did you think of this version of it i mean obviously it's much better than the mary ellen trainer one but again that's not really hard like you said it's you've got joan collins who is much more of an evil character which i think works in this telling of the story and it also helps that they downplay the idea that her husband is an asshole i think playing up the fact that she's just really mean-spirited and a murderess and downplaying that he's just kind of like an asshole works in its favor, which is a lot of fun for kind of flipping the original shows or the the show's premise on its head because it's not what you're expecting if you're going into this expecting it to be similar to the show. Everything else is the same, essentially. Pretty much. Which is good, and, and it also feels shorter than the episode, which is also good. I believe it actually is. Yeah, that was one of the problems I had with the episode is that it feels like they were padding it out for time. And in this, it's pretty straight to the point. There's not a whole lot of dicking around. There's not a whole lot of wheel spinning. Straight to the point, really straightforward. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. And Joan Collins is really good. Joan Collins definitely is the standout. The character in the American version, like she kills her husband and then doesn't really seem to have a plan beyond that. Whereas this character has thought it through. She knows that she's going to hit him in the head with this thing. And then she's going to make it look as if he tumbled down the stairs. Now, I mean, I mean, obviously, she gets some blood everywhere, and uh, that was unforeseen. Uh, nevertheless, she's ready to scoop it all up into a uh, into a champagne flute and then pour it at the bottom of the stairs so it looks as if uh, he had just fallen down and died. Whereas the Mary Ellen Trainer characters was going to take his body into the backyard and then dump him into a well, thus ensuring that she would never get the insurance money because he would just be a missing person for a couple of years. So uh, a much more devious character in this case. And I got to say, um, because of that fact, uh, I, I'm actually on her side uh, as the uh, episode progresses, whereas the Mary Ellen Trainer, I was kind of like, man, if she gets killed, she gets killed. She's kind of an idiot anyway. I, I'm not on her side because she's obviously a very malicious character but i think that again the the only thing that is lacking is the performance by the father christmas but again kind of cutting it for time means that you don't have to really go out of your way to really play it up like they did with larry drake in the tales from the crypt tv show yeah i mean they just need the outside threat yeah it's a really good kind of opener to the movie I think it's definitely better than the original or the the TV show, which, again, works in its favor because you know that I'm not a huge, huge fan of the TV show's version. I think it's interesting that you, they start it with this. Like, you know, ordinarily Christmas is the end of the year and you think this would be sort of the capper at the end, but they sort of uh, they, they launch with it, which which I like. And uh, and it's not a supernatural tale necessarily. Um, we get a little bit of both or rather, you know, supernatural and not uh, throughout the thing. But it's uh, it's a good, uh, nice uh, 
intro to uh, to uh, the tone that Tales from the Crypt sort of uh, likes to balance. So, uh, yeah, no, I think this this particular story is a winner. So then we move on to Reflections of Death. That is from Tales from the Crypt number 23 of the same title. Now, Reflections of Death is one that I don't believe is ever touched upon in the show. No, they never made, they never remade this. Which is fine because, honestly, it's not much. Mm-hmm. It's a scant episode, yes, but uh, or rather story. Uh, I still like it though. The payoff is is again. It's like it, it's all really centered around this twist. So you have Ian Hendry who plays a philandering family man who is running away with his girlfriend, and they get into a car accident, and then he wakes up from the car accident, and then it turns out that he's actually he's actually been dead. Oh, he's a walking corpse at this point. Yeah, th- yeah, it all goes to like a POV of him sort of wandering and terrifying anyone who uh, sort of encounters him. He like goes, he finds his uh, his girlfriend's, well, doesn't he? he goes home at one point. Right, and he notices his wife with another man. Yeah, like the name on the mailbox is now different, and uh, so then he goes and finds his, his ex-girlfriend or his girlfriend at the time who he thinks and, and realizes it's, it's it's time has moved on and now she's like blind and uh, and living in the same apartment that they were running from. She's blind from the accident, I'm assuming. From the accident, yeah. And that, that's when he realizes, he sees his own reflection and realizes he's dead. The makeup is not great. It is 1972. And uh, this is like a 170,000 pound production. But uh, uh, I like... I, 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 I don't really care. Uh, the, the the fact that he wakes up and he's dead, or rather realizes he's dead, um, to me isn't the good twist. The fact that he then wakes up from the dream and it happens again, this idea that... Um you know, Stephen King once said, hell is repetition. And I like the idea that this this prick who is uh, sort of abandoning his children, like, is going to uh, re-experience this thing over and over again. See, I didn't take it as him repeating it over and over. I took it as him just waking up and then actually dying. So it was like a premonition. Oh, no, I see that. Yeah, I guess that that's my interpretation then, because... Uh, because everything sort of happened exactly the way it, it happened. I mean, I, I guess, guess it, you know, they, they sort of worked this out over and over again in the Final Destination movies. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was under the impression that he's locked in that loop, that that's going to be his eternity. Once you figure out the twist at the end of the film, that's probably the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think it's okay. I, I think it's the shortest bit in the entire film. Yeah. It's like, like maybe... It, it's not the best minutes. story here. Yeah. It's It's okay. It's yeah, it's not the best story. However, speaking of the best story, move on to the third story of the film, Poetic Justice. It's taken from The Haunt of Fear number 12, which is published in March 1952. It stars David Markham, Robin Phillips, and Peter Cushing. Markham and Phillips play a father and son who are trying to get a widowed hermit out of their neighborhood because he is He's lowering the property values. He's a trash collector, uh, like uh, he literally is a is a garbage man, and he uh, he collects little bits of uh, of trash, like toys and things, and he fixes them up and he gives them to the neighborhood kids. And he has too many dogs in his place. That he's a he's yeah, as you said, he's a widower. So like his only joy are in his dogs and uh, in making the neighborhood kids happy. But these two uh, uh, rich sons of bitches. Uh, look at him and his hovel that he lives in. They want him out so that they can raise the property value. 
values in their neighborhood. And it's it is the most sad, depressing story of I've, I've ever seen associated with Tales from the. It is such absolutely a bummer and a downer. But I mean, there is some, the t- the two characters who are destroying Peter Cushing's life do get their comeuppance at the end. However, oh my, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like enough. Is it commensurate with what happens to to poor Arthur Grimsdyke? Uh, I I don't know. No, it doesn't feel like enough. In, in my opinion, it doesn't feel like enough. They get his dogs taken away. They essentially imply that he's molesting children. And yeah. Then they make sure uh, that he loses his job. Yeah, like a, like weeks before his pension is supposed to kick in, right? And then the son sends him poison pen, which is a term for like slanderous male in the form of valentines and he kills himself because of it because the poison pen valentines essentially say you know hey we don't want you here hey we don't like you here get the fuck out of here yeah they're they're all signed in the uh uh basically the names of all of the neighborhood people and they are horrifically uh mean-spirited and it should be pointed out that as a widower there's a there's a bit where um you know he uh, he engages in automatic writing like he uses a planchette and uh, like a like a Ouija board to talk with his dead wife, tell her of his woes and and uh, and how much he misses her. And uh, these guys push him so far over the edge that he eventually hangs himself. However, he does finally get his comeuppance by ripping out the son's heart and writing a Valentine of his own a year later. And I will say the makeup on Peter Cushing when he comes back from the dead, pretty good, pretty creepy. It's fantastic pretty like rough but like rough like in a like a gross way if that makes sense if the makeup in the rest of the movie is lacking it's because they put it in this story and it is well worth it um the the look of arthur grimsdyke when he crawls out of that grave is super spectacular as far as i'm concerned it's one that has stuck with me ever since childhood um it's funny uh, i follow uh, you know rick baker the um, sort of makeup artist like uh he, he'll constantly post on instagram like photos of uh, things he's done for halloween and i believe just this past year he actually went as arthur grimsdyke for for halloween uh he did a, a really credible job but uh putting that aside um this yeah this is my favorite uh story featured here and in, in this anthology I, they did not remake this for the television series either which um, is surprising and, because it is so good. It, yeah, it is absolutely shocking given some of the ones that they chose to adapt uh, that they wouldn't have gone here. Um, it is heartbreaking. Peter Cushing, uh, who plays mainly heavies, uh, you know, I think most people uh, in the world today, particularly here in America, would know him as Grand Moff Tarkin in uh, the, the the original Star Wars A New Hope. Um and uh, and that's kind of a shame because he had a long and uh, illustrious career, um, and uh, but he always sort of played very forthright, strong characters. Uh, to see this character who is so uh, like broken and beaten down uh, is a is a departure for him, but a welcome one. Uh, he is uh, he you can. He's reading these uh, these cards, and you can see every emotion uh, in those big eyes of his. Um, uh, it's an amazing performance, uh, much better than uh, I won't say than the movie deserves, but uh, certainly uh, a remarkable piece of work uh, in film. Well, and again, he he really is the cornerstone and the like the the rock of this ep- of this episode of this this bit in the film, and he his performance will stick with me. It's the best like you said this is the best thing in this film 
is this is this bit this story the poetic justice story now uh, i i will say this because I, I i am a big peter cushing fan i'll point out that in you know in 1943 uh he married his love of his life a woman named helen she died about six months before they made this film and originally uh, he was offered uh, a different role in the film, and he chose to do this one instead. As heartbreaking as his performance is, um, just on the surface, knowing that it makes it even more so. A little bit of catharsis. A, a little bit, but at the same time, if you read anything about him, uh, you would know that he, he literally said these words, like, uh, I'm just killing time. Life for him had effectively, he said, uh, lost meaning. Uh, he, in, in fact, wanted to kill himself, uh, but found a poem that his wife had written him, urging him to continue on in her absence. This performance in this story, I mean, I'm sure most people would just sort of dismiss this movie as, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, one-off, cheapy horror movie, uh, and they're they're only doing themselves a disservice because this is one of the best performances of his career. It's remarkable to see in the middle of this particular film. Yeah, I cannot recommend this highly enough, this particular story. I mean, I recommend the movie overall, but uh, if you had to watch one thing of it, it, it would be this. I mean, I would actually put this particular story and the way it's handled up against any of the best of the TV series as well. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It really, it's going to stick with me more than most of the good episodes of the show will because mm -hmm. it's just everything about Peter Cushing's performance really just roots it in reality in a way that a lot of the episodes of Tales from the Crypt don't and they give you a reason to care about the character and it's like probably like what 17 18 minutes yeah, yeah, if that, it is so lean, and, and it is plot-driven. Somehow, he manages, in what little screen time he's given, to imbue that character with such pathos. I think we've all known this kind of uh, person, this uh, sort of lonely, lonely old man. I don't know, it absolutely breaks my heart. It's a downer of a bit in the movie, and but it is the best, it's the best bit, without a doubt. As you said earlier, like, I appreciate... The, this particular story beginning to end, uh, I do wish in my uh, crazy heart of hearts, uh, not to, no pun intended, to, uh, if, if he had somehow punished these people even more. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Or, I mean, he effectively just shows up and rips that guy's heart out, but uh, he, he deserved a much worse fate uh, than what he was given. So, I mean, I guess that maybe speaks to the character of Arthur Grimsdyke that even in the end, he's kind of merciful in his revenge. Yeah, that, like I said, it, it kind of at the lead into this, talking about this bit, it's, I feel like they, he should have really, like, gone for it, really. They should have had him, like, get his comeuppance, like, 
on them in spades. Yeah. So, well, let's let's move on to the next one. Next one's not so great. It's called Wish You Were Here. It's based on Wish You Were Here from The Haunt of Fear, number 22. It is a variation on the classic Monkey's Paw story by W.W. Jacobs. It stars Richard Green as a businessman who can't seem to provide for his wife, played by Barbara Murray. She has a Chinese figurine that she was told grants three wishes. She makes three wishes. Everything goes awry. Mike, I'm going to level with you. This one was not very good. Actually, this this one this one is probably the least exciting bit of the film, even more so than Reflections of Death. This one is effectively a stage play. I mean, it is uh, a couple of characters in a room. As you said, it, it is just a play on the monkey's paw where, you know, she makes a wish to get a million dollars and they get a million dollars, but it's because the husband was killed in a car accident. They did a variation on this in the Twilight Zone as well, the old, uh, the original Twilight Zone, uh, with a, with a, it was a genie episode. They don't do anything too remarkable with it. The performance are pretty good. I will say that this is just because I saw this movie as young as I did. Um, the final kind of twist at the end where uh, she... So they, they learned their lesson from the monkey's paw, the original tale in this. At least there's that. Where she wants him back, but before uh, he had was, was killed in the car wreck. Uh, because she doesn't want a mangled corpse showing up at the door. So instead, she gets the dead body. Now, I guess it doesn't make logical sense, you know, as an adult looking back at this, but then she wishes for him to be alive as he is now and to never, ever die, but he's already been embalmed. So he's screaming in agony because his blood has been replaced with formalin. They chop him to pieces. I don't know. It's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense, and I know, I, I get where you're coming from on it, but... It really twisted my mind as a kid to think of this guy, like, in constant agony who can never die. And they even chop him into pieces, making it much worse. I like the ending of this one a lot. The ending of this reminded me of reminded me of Return of the Living Dead, where you have the zombie cut up into pieces and it's just kind of wriggling around. It's a little goofy. A little bit. I like the motorcycle guy. I like the uh, the sort of death head motorcycle guy that comes for him. I like that. That's probably the, the most interesting part is the the Grim Reaper on a motorcycle, but it's just, I don't know. I've, we, I mean, you've seen the story a million times. It's been parodied on everything from The Simpsons to, I mean, it would, like you said, it was on Twilight Zone. I'm sure it's been on The Twilight Zone several times in several variations. It's not a new story. It's the be careful what you wish for. I believe it was even made into a film last year, this year, Wish Upon. Essentially the same. Uh, yeah. The same fucking story. So... Absolutely. It's not original, and that's kind of the the big kind of bummer for me is like, I wish it were more because you have, it comes right after Poetic Justice, which is so good. Yeah, I mean, look, they, uh, ultimately they should have used uh, Poetic Justice at the very end of this. Um, or maybe they did. I don't know. The, the last story actually ends up being pretty good. This one should have come immediately after and all through the house as far as the order of the stories go. But uh, let me point out this, Chris. The Frogert is also cursed. The Frogert is also cursed. God damn it. <laughs> oh, we also have Frogert. <laughs> the Frogert is also cursed. I'm glad that you've seen that. Okay, because that's... Oh my god, yeah. No, that's one of the best Simpsons of all time. But that's not that's not Monkey's Paw, though. Isn't that the doll? Uh, no, the I think that's the doll, Monkey's Paw it? episode. He, he No, he sells forbidden objects. Uh, and yeah, he gives him the Monkey's Paw. That is the Monkey's Paw episode. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like when you've been parodied by the Simpsons, it's like you've kind of reached the zenith of pop culture penetration. The, the Simpsons are parodying the twist in your story then uh, there's probably no reason to retell that story ever again. 
So we'll move on to the final bit from the film. Blind alleys taken from the taken from Tales from the Crypt number 46 from February 1955. It features Nigel Patrick and Patrick McGee. Nigel Patrick plays a former military man who is tasked with being the director of a home for the blind. Patrick McGee plays one of the blind residents and they get their comeuppance on him in astounding fashion after he starts making budget cuts so that he can live a more luxurious lifestyle on the grounds. This this one almost edges out poetic justice because Patrick McGee is amazing. Uh, most people know Patrick McGee, if they know him at all, from A Clockwork Orange. He plays the writer uh, in it that uh, Alex DeLarge there uh, sort of assaults at the beginning and who ends up uh, attempting to... Uh, kill him by the end of the, the thing it's a great performance he's an interesting fella good sort of always creepy even when he's being a nice guy character actor and uh yeah this one's a real good one um and you know i, I take it back this you know poetic justice is the best in the lot but i think this is the, how you want to end a movie uh the ending is uh, so severe and uh, and interesting well, and Blind Alleys was remade. Um, it was called Revenge uh, Revenge is the Nuts on the show. That episode features Terry Polo and Anthony Zerbe, one of the great character actors. So this one was remade. I don't remember the episode at all. I'm assuming it has to have been a later one. Yes, uh, I, I do believe it is. I think it was maybe third or fourth season. We should point out that the previous episode was also remade. The uh, the Monkey's Paw episode, Wish You Were Here, was remade. And it was remade by Freddie Francis. Francis, who directed this movie. Yeah, but again, the plot is very similar to this, the, the previous yeah. one. Again, I don't Absolutely. know how creative you can get with the monkey's paw plot device. In the case of the uh, Tales from the Crypt episode uh, of the TV series, uh, it improves on uh, Wish You Were Here in almost every way. Uh, they uh, they do come up with a, an interesting uh, twist. I mean, obviously, we'll, we're going to get to it eventually. It is, uh, it's actually a pretty innovative uh, use of the, uh, the sort of monkey's paw trope. Well, I'm looking forward to that because I don't remember either of these episodes. However, back to Blind Alleys, it is yes. such a good segment in this film that it almost, like I said, it almost edges out Poetic Justice because everything about it, it, it has that little bit of like dagger twist comeuppance that Poetic Justice doesn't have. You really mm-hmm. feel that Patrick McGee's character and the rest of the blind people at the like the home for the blind really get their comeuppance on Nigel Patrick. You know, in a way that feels not only deserved but also well earned. Yeah, very uh, well earned. I mean, this is uh, you know this guy takes over this home for the blind, and uh, he's a uh, former military commander. And so, you know, he effectively treats everyone like his troops and that they should be able to endure whatever he dishes out, you know, to the point of, like, feeding them less and less uh, decent food and then, uh, yeah, cutting the, uh, the, the amount of uh, f- heating oil that they can use during the winter and not even giving them blankets to sort of take – it is a very close to uh, poetic justice in the uh, in watching these poor men, you know, have to suffer at the hands of this son of a bitch who living a good life, like you know, his 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 quarters are not uh, not 
not heated. Um, and he's eating steaks and uh, he's feeding steaks to his dog. And we should point out that the dog is very important in this, uh, that he has like a German shepherd who is very well uh, maintained and cared for because uh, he does figure very heavily into the uh, the, the comeuppance uh, aspect of the ending. Yeah, I really like this one a lot. I'm actually, and I do not remember the, uh, the, the TV version either. So I'm actually looking forward to it, though. I understand uh, just from what I've read that they, uh, there is a bit of a variation in it uh, with the American one. But, uh, you know, we'll see. As it stands, though, this is a really good episode. It's actually a good bookend to Poetic Justice because, as I said, most uh, Tales from the Crypt episodes either hewed one way or the other. They were either supernatural or just sort of straight-ahead thriller. And uh, this is kind of the straight-ahead thriller version of uh, Poetic Justice, which is uh, leans more toward the supernatural. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. This is one of those well-done, non-supernatural episodes. Or segments and that's kind of few and far between in the show and in the movie yeah well, because the non-supernatural segments i guess i guess technically there's only one other one which is the same and all through the house yeah but this is better than all th- and all through the house like heads and shoulders above it uh yeah well i don't know i think patrick mcgee's performance is better than joan collins yeah but then he's got a lot he's got a lot more to chew on you know uh, joan collins i mean you can't discount a person who is effectively just by themselves and sort of having to register everything without dialogue um you know they're like uh uh, again, uh, what what I really enjoyed about the end all through the house episode here was uh, the fact that they let the audience sort of uh, fill in all the gaps, whereas in the uh, American version, they had her spouting everything that was coming into her head and speaking out every motivation uh, that her character was uh, uh, sort of under, under the sway of. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's no question that uh, this is the way you end uh, a, a horror anthology. you got to hit them uh, hard and uh, sort of make them crawl out of the theater. And then the bookend ending, it wouldn't be Tales from the Crypt without an actual bookend ending, has the Crypt Keeper revealing that everything that we've already seen has happened. It wasn't a warning. They died without repentance, and they all go to hell. They do. And uh, I don't know that this was the this actually I know for a fact this was not the first time Amicus uh, sort of uh, used this ending with uh, with a group of disparate characters who have come together to hear their tales and then they end up in hell. It's it's effective. Yeah, it's. I mean, I I don't know. It's not exactly the most creative ending, but that's because I've we've all seen stuff like this at this point. And also, oh yeah, it's not like this was a hard conclusion to come to either. So no, it, yeah, these characters might have figured it out uh, a, a long time ago. And I think now is as good a time as any to talk about Sir Ralph Richardson as the Crypt Keeper. wasn't was not my cup of tea. Well, he certainly wouldn't be if you had had any exposure to the American television series, uh, which. Um, got closer to the uh, spirit of the the uh, original character without without sort of uh, mimicking the original character. Like if you read the comic books, he's not a corpse at all. He's just a uh, crazy man, um, uh, a long haired uh, uh, spinner of yarns. Look, they hired Sir Ralph Richardson. He's going to put in a Ralph Richardson performance. Um, if you don't know Ralph Richardson, by the way, uh, you know he was in Doctor Zhivago, and uh, he played uh, the eternal uh, the eternal being in uh, Time Bandits. Um, he's a very well-respected Shakespearean actor. I don't know how they got him, honestly, <laughs> for this for this micro-budgeted horror movie. And I'm sure they were, like, jumping up and down when they did. 
but uh, I, you know, I get it. Uh, he, he is definitely not the Crypt Keeper. I doubt he read a comic book in his entire lifetime, so I don't think he was basing his performance on anything but the script. Yeah, it isn't the Crypt Keeper we know and love. Um, I think he works in the the sort of purview of this particular film um, because uh, uh, you know this film is very humorless. I mean, I think it's funny just because I'm twisted, I guess. It isn't uh, uh, sort of uh, aimed at comedy uh, like the American version seems to be more of. Um, I think he's actually uh, appropriate for the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he, he ain't no Crypt Keeper. He's no John Kassir. Well, and that's the thing is, like you mentioned in the source material, the Crypt Keeper is just a crazy old man. I think Ralph Richardson downplays it too much it's like yeah a little bit i mean he's very serious yeah it's too downplayed i mean at the end he should be kind of like really going for it right at the end when he's like and you and you could be next like it doesn't just mean to be like and you could be next it's it's not haunting or creepy and it doesn't stick with you it's kind of the most forgettable part of the film which is a yeah uh, no, i'll buy that through line of the entire film. right he doesn't kind of uh, revel in uh, in any of these uh, these things. He's just sort of uh, very matter of fact, and uh, maybe a bit more glee uh, was necessary, at least in the final shot. Uh, uh, he should have been uh, pretty ecstatic that he was getting to uh, to meet out justice on these uh, evildoers, which they all end up being. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of my issue. Is it just it's too downplayed, and that's it's just unfortunate. Let me mention one thing quick. Um, now the uh, uh, opening of the film, uh, they use what is perhaps an overused piece of music. It is Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Um, you hear it every Halloween, every Halloween TV special, every kid's Halloween TV special for forever and ever. It's the da 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 We've all heard it a million times. So it's the Dracula music. Yes, yeah, so yeah, exactly. The Dracula. Yeah, the, 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 there you go. Count von Count on Sesame Street has this music playing when they introduce him. Um, so it is an overused piece of music. However, it is, in my humble opinion, uh, one of the uh, most beautiful pieces of music of all time. And the version that they happen to use here, which I believe is the Royal Philharmonic, is my favorite version of this uh, particular piece uh, of all time. I'm a big fan of Bach. It's pretty much all I listen to when I listen to classical music. And uh, this version is great. I, I appreciate, as a fan of the of the theme itself, um, that uh, they allow almost the entire piece to play over the opening credits. They don't just sort of give us that sting of the uh, you know the opening few bars and then like okay now we'll let, let's start the story i know that's a weird aside but um it's uh, one of the things i like about this movie the most no i mean you're right they tokata and fugue always gets the the intro notes overplayed so it is nice to see it being used in its entirety and there are portions of it sort of a little bit later on uh down the piece which are in my opinion like really beautiful and uh and nobody ever gets to hear it i mean the the theme itself was used again not too long after this in a movie also starring uh sir ralph richardson that was uh, the original rollerball with james Kahn. that's sort of the opening theme for it but their version is not as good as this version so mike would you skip this film or watch it would you suggest our oh, listeners skip it or watch it watch it immediately immediately this is a good movie 
Yeah, I would say watch it as well. You just have to, you know, make sure you go into it with kind of um, the expectation that this is not your average Tales from the Crypt. This is a very different interpretation. This is a very straightforward and serious interpretation. Do, do not do not qualify this. This is a good movie. Everyone should watch it. <laughs> yeah, poetic ju- just poetic justice alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah, uh, just don't expect this to be. Tales from the Crypt, the TV show, because it's nothing like. No, it, it it no, it's not that at all. I, I and I appreciate that, but um, there are a couple of uh, of these stories uh, which uh, tower over above uh, some of the more garbage episodes of the uh, you know the, the the TV series, which I'm not trying to cast dispersions on the TV series as a whole, but some of the episodes uh, that we're going to be getting to are dreadful, and uh, these are much much better. And as I said, like uh, you know, your and mine favorite episode uh, is. Uh, the man who was death, and uh, I would put poetic justice right beside it, uh, uh, equal in quality. I would agree with you 100%. All right, on the next episode of Chronicles from the Crypt, we're going to be taking a look at episodes one and two of season two. We're going to be kicking off season two with a look at Dead Right. That is the episode we talked a little bit about in the Only Sin Deep episode that is that features Demi Moore and Jeffrey Tambor. Yes, that Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, you gotta say it that way now, don't we? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Demi Moore plays a gold digger looking to make a quick buck, and she goes to a fortune teller, and that fortune teller gives her a fortune about a fortune that may be coming up soon. And then the switch is the Arnold Schwarzenegger-directed episode featuring William Hickey as a elderly, wealthy man who wants to impress... Kelly Preston, of all people. So he goes to Roy Brocksmith for a operation that may switch his body parts with Rick Rossovich's body parts. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about on those episodes because, boy, those are some episodes for sure. Those are some episodes indeed. You know, you know what's shocking to me? That Schwarzenegger didn't direct more. Yeah, he directed Tales from the Crypt. And that's <laughs> kind of it. <laughs> kind of weird right it's almost like he wasn't cut out for it clearly his talents lied be lay behind the camera yeah super weird and uh, we're actually gonna be joined <laughs> by uh our good friend the host of the projection booth podcast mr mike white to kick off that season two detroit's own mike white detroit's own mike white until fantastic then, where can people find you Mr. Mr. Wallace. They can find me on Twitter at FatherMalone73, or you can find me on my YouTube channel, which is called Ot5Films. That's all one word. And uh, I have a TV, uh, uh, not TV show, but a show, uh, the reviewing films called You've Never Seen. Uh, you can check me out there. And uh, you can also hear me from time to time on the Culture Cast, guest, uh, guest spotting, and, uh, and upcoming... Uh, I believe there's a, an incredible new podcast coming out called Dreams for Sale. Have you heard of this one, Chris? It's amazing. Yeah, I've heard about it. It's because we're both on it. Uh, and we're talking about... Oh, Tales Jesus, Tales. that's we're right. Gonna, we're not talking Tales from the Crypt. We're talking another anthology series. We're talking Twilight Zone 1985. That's right. We are slowly working our way to every anthology series being covered by us. We should just start a podcast called The Antho Podcast, where we just yeah. watch anthology TV shows. But not garbage like American Horror Story, because that's... Uh, is that an anthology series? I mean, you know... Technically, you, it is. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, they tell a different story every year, I suppose. But uh, uh, you know what's crazy is uh, how many seasons of that show and not one scare. Ah, uh, yeah. Kind of odd, yeah. don't you think? It's more shock value. It's horror for the yeah. 21st century crowd. So it's like, oh, isn't that crazy? There's like a gimp suit guy. It's, yeah. Who won? I like that first season. Me. 
Yeah, the first season is the only one worth watching. The, the 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 most disappointing thing about it is the best thing Ryan Murphy ever did is Nip Tuck, and like, no, I don't hear anybody talk about that anymore because of Glee or American Horror. Well, you know, I might disagree with you because uh, his uh, his series that just came out called Pose was actually really really good. You can follow me on Twitter at Culture Stash. You can follow Chronicles from the Crypt on Twitter at Chronicles FTC, and you can find us over at chroniclesfromthecrypt.com. We're on all podcatchers, iOS and Android. Give us a favorable review on iTunes. It'll help other people find the show. And, uh, you know, tell other people you know that like Tales from the Crypt about it because Tales from the Crypt's pretty cool and it needs to be brought back up but not remade. Yeah, there you go. Or um, if it's going to be remade, uh, do it correctly. Maybe have And not with Shyamalan. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Why not? He's the go-to guy all of a sudden, right? Yeah. Maybe have Jordan Peele do it. That'd be fun. And uh, make sure to check out the next episode. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.